Ahoy! It's part two of the M-Pods, Tim and Matt's top 20 films of the last 12 months. So, the Oscar cycle. And what's surprising to me is not the amount of the abundance, in actual fact, of sick-ass films that we've got in our top 10s. It's that I've actually managed to keep on top of uploading these episodes. So... Hopefully you've listened to part one. That's available on whatever platform you're watching this on. With that said, I'm going to hand you over to co-host Matt. And I hope you enjoy the episode. Toodles! Welcome everybody to another episode of the End Podcast. And I am one half of our delicious co-hosting team. I am Matt and you can find the podcast on all quality listening locations. <laughs> you can also find us on Twitter. You can also find us on Instagram. If you found this on YouTube, then you can go on Spotify and search for us as the End Pod, and that is with Spank Media. If you uh, you know, can't find us on Twitter and Instagram, we are the End Underscore Pod. And now that's all out the way. Oh no, it's not out the way. Like, subscribe, follow. <laughs> comment if you do a review on spotify which you can now do if you give us a, a sparkling five-star review on spotify i'll pick it up and we'll we'll read it out and we'll just basically say how good you are for um, yeah. a couple of minutes on the next episode <laughs> oh yeah that's tim by the way tim's here how are you doing tim hey, hey. Yo, yo, yo. What a calamitous start to the episode, eh? <laughs> <laughs> you can tell I'm a little bit weary. Um, our top 20 best of films from not because we missed the beginning or end of the year for 2022, but for the Oscars cycle. How clever are we, eh? We did from 20 to 11, and now we're going to yep. pick up from 10 to 1. Can you remember who went first last time, Tim? I went first last time. Well, you go first again then. Number 10, please. All right. My number 10, Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris. Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris. Not one I've seen. I love this movie. Partly it's because I have like a soft spot. Now, I don't have like a nice wardrobe. I wear like jeans and t-shirts, but I have a lot of interest and respect for bespoke fashion. So I like this woman, the working class woman, like saving up and getting this Dior dress. It was just such a great time. And I... I have a lot of interest in these old-fashioned houses. So that was kind of cool. And then the costuming is so good. And her transition, her evolution, it was a very, very lovely movie. A nice time at the theater. You should see this, Matt. Give it a watch. It's a very sweet movie. I've got cupboards of clothes that don't fit me. Like, literally cupboards and cupboards. Now all I've got Man. is, like, three tracksuits underneath the bed. <laughs> I rotate. <laughs> and not even good ones, because I refuse to spend the money on fat clothes. Yeah, I bought a suit for a wedding that didn't even fit me. I had to I do the fly halfway up and then fold over. <laughs> and then I tried breakdancing at the end of the night. And my trousers fell down because they weren't even belted. <laughs> <laughs> What's a dickhead, hey? Anyway, oh. who was in that yeah. one? Who was Mrs. Harris? Mrs. Harris, uh, Leslie Manville. I don't know her. What else has she been in? So she's been in the movies since the mid-80s. She was in Maleficent. Yeah. Oh, oh, she's in Phantom Threat. She plays the the business partner's sister to Daniel Day-Lewis. That was a great movie. You've seen that, Phantom Threat? I, thought, I don't think I've seen a single Daniel oh, Day-Lewis that's so, film. Yeah, that was Daniel Day-Lewis's last movie. Paul Thomas Anderson. It's also about, he plays a, um, a designer. That was great. And she's very good in it. So yeah, I have seen her before. I just didn't know it. 
The thing that puts me off about Daniel Day-Lewis, I know he does the whole character actor thing, is no one ever does it for a nice role. No one's abundantly nice. They only have a character act when they're playing an absolute cunt. With him, yeah. every clip of him I've seen is exhausting to watch. In the pit of his stomach, getting either angry or something's being oppressed with every sinew of his being. I drink oh, your there, milk. Yeah, there will be blood, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Robert Pattinson said something similar. People only use the method when they're playing an asshole. Yeah. Yeah, totally. My number 10, Tim. Yeah, let's have it. Right. This is going to probably be the most controversial pick on both of the top 20s. But this film is, and I think you'll know straight away from when I say this, it stayed with me like a film has for a time that I can't remember the last one. Maybe it was Paranormal Activity. Maybe it was The Ring. Art the Clown is <gasps> one of the literally terrifying that when I go to bed at night, I go downstairs now and check that the front door's locked. When I fall asleep with my back to the bedroom door, I don't sleep easy. Terrifier 2, it was made by fledgling production house Bloody Disgusting. And Lauren Levera is the central protagonist and David Howard Thornton plays Art the Clown. Now, the first film was criticised for not having any story arc. It was basically fumbling in the dark and waiting for the kill. So Damien Leone took it to heart. What I liked oh, about no. this is it felt sincerely 80s. The heavy synth soundtrack, the edge of comedy. And 80s horror films weren't shy about making female leads a hero because they didn't have have the hubris of the male characters. Lauren Levera is absolutely brilliant. A little bit of side boob in a shower scene is all we needed. <laughs> <laughs> Where this differs from the first film, the escalation of depraved kill scenes. And sometimes they're not even kill scenes. Sometimes prolonging the torture. Every cut's deeper. Every cut's longer last. The way that David Howard Thornton plays art, he really adopts the mind persona. And there's something about that just makes it all the more sinister and menacing. Like the way the child catcher in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang was actually a professional ballerina from Russia. They wanted someone that was nimble and light on the feet mm -hmm. to give it that creepy, can't see him coming, ghostly, whistly present. You don't feel like there's a man behind it. You do genuinely think that Art the Clown is something that exists within that realm. Yeah, that's terrifying. It fucked me up, mate. Fucked me up. Because I still get scared in the dark, you know. Like sometimes when I close my eyes, I mean like a proper phobia, not like just being a bit of a pussy off. <laughs> but okay. Sometimes at night when I close my eyes, whatever hormone that being terrified is, whenever I close my eyes, I feel like I need to open them again. Quite brutal, actually. When you're in your 40s, you just rationalise it. No, it's fine. Your body's just out of sync a little bit at the minute. If you get to sleep, then it'll go away and you'll wake up in the morning. The first couple of nights when I was upstairs in my bed and I was thinking, God, imagine if he was sitting downstairs just on the sofa. You know, like how he's eerily still, almost giving an opportunity for his next victim to escape. Yes. Yeah. You know they're not going to, but that sort of slow, patient, in waiting. <laughs> and that's the worst, we've said before, that's the worst thing. Sometimes yes. there's the one where you can't see around the corner. It's set at Halloween. It could just be a stink costume. <laughs> right. <laughs> Somebody that's overplaying the role. It also shows how, how accepting and willing to give a chance people are to start with. Because if that motherfucker turns up with a plastic bag, a bin bag, clanking, <laughs> it's, it's <a> <laughs> you're slamming the door shut, you're locking the windows, you're running upstairs, the bed's against the wall, and I'm screaming out the window. <laughs> yeah. I'm not waiting for him to come back and knock for the third time, trick or treat. <laughs> the, co the costume design is so good in that, too. Like, that is a fucking scary looking character. Setting hard. aside, like, what he does. Ugh. And the final scene is actually not too dissimilar to The End of Men. Yeah, horrifying. Yeah. yeah. I'd say the only thing that took me out of the film every time is I know how weak those bin bags are. That You can't even put the recycled plastics in glass without something poking out the edge, like a pizza box <laughs> that's spread. And it's got like saws and hammers in a garbage bag. Yeah. <laughs> He's not going five metres before the bottom falls out of it. At least double <laughs> right. bag, you fucking pervert. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh. All right, so that's Terrifier 2, Tim. Over to yours for number nine, please. 
I'm going to go with Pearl, number nine. I have it in my top 10 in contrast with X, which I also quite liked because it would have been easy to do a prequel that had a similar tone or a similar style than uh, as does X, but the tone and style are completely different. Unless you knew, you would not know that this is connected at all. And I thought it was like the rare origin story that really works and is, is deeply compelling. A wash in primary colors. And it gives you like a sense of a certain amount of sympathy for Pearl, the ultimate antagonist in act. Mia Goth is so great. She's great, isn't she? Yeah. Have you seen it? I haven't, no. Oh, yeah. It's kind of like on you to read stack trades or comics or whatever it is. There's always one that's about the midpoint. It's never mm-hmm. at the bottom, but there's always something that gets put on top of it. Yeah, and yeah, that contrast in filming styles is even more poignant because they actually shot them back to back. Yeah, the, exactly. And the trailer pearl was actually the post-credit scene of X. Yeah, yeah, which a lot of people right. didn't didn't even realize when the trailer was released on released online. It had actually been available for eight months or six months at that point. Totally, the flexibility of the vision was just really impressive. I think it's a really nice franchise. Like, I hope they keep going with it to a certain point. There's always that fine line, like, okay, how many of these are you going to do? Like, at what point does it sort of jump the shark? But I think at this point, it's dialed in. Really, really enjoyed it. There's a sequel coming, isn't there? It was always planned as a trilogy. Yeah. Yeah. And she is a budding star. She's a very good actor. Knowing that the X-Men are just over the hill. Yeah. Could she possibly be a rogue? Totally. Yeah. 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 She'd be great. Yeah, that's a good one. I I would would recommend. All right. You're number nine. Yeah. Okay. Um, This one's going to be, I think, a fairly obvious choice, for at least for my top 10. From Netflix, it's all quiet on the Western front. Mm. Um, First time it's been adapted in its native German language. And it shows the story of a group of young German men who are swept up in the excitement of the war effort in World War One, falling foul of propaganda and you know nationalism. They join the war effort and then they're on the front lines within a couple of weeks. And then the you know, dastardly, cruel nature of war becomes more than apparent and they wonder what it is in actual fact they've been tricked into joining. You are clearly watching Nazi troops But what it does well is allows you to be sympathetic that really there was no winners in that war. Nine million soldiers in combat, 23 million wounded, five million civilians died as a result of... Almost inconsequential slaughter of generation. And the fact that it wasn't learned from, and we still had a Second World War, which was still ground troops, just throwing endlessly young men into live fire. It's, mm-hmm. you can't, the tragedy of war is always felt. The powerful thing about this is that you are sympathizing with Nazis. The hardest thing you can ever do in a film, make you sympathize with Nazis. Yeah, yeah. Maybe a racist. Racies, ra- racies. Nazis. Yeah. <laughs> Nazis and racists are the two things. The two things that should be not only impossible to humanize, but this did. But you're not sympathizing with them as Nazis, you're sympathizing them as young men that have been cruelly swept into a war effort. The churn of bodies. The one thing this showed that I've not seen in, at least I can't recall seeing in another film, is when the German soldier, like this is just like me or you being given an axe and a bayonet and a rifle. And then in two weeks' time, we're engaging in hand-to-hand combat, having to stab somebody to death with a fucking axe. Mm. In two weeks, it shows the profound effect on the, the young German infantryman as he tries to save the life of the Allied soldier that he's just butchered to save his own life. He's yeah, like trying yeah. to stop the bleeding, he's trying to apply pressure, and then he just lies next to him and just uncontrollably sobs. It's, yeah. Mm. Go on, then, you're number nine. All right, oh, no, let's do... Number... Yeah, you're number eight, I should say. All right, my number eight, we've talked about it already, Vengeance. Okay, cool. BJ Novak film. So anyone who wants to... We did a whole conversation about that in our, our last episode, but I just love this movie because I thought the performances were so good. It's the rare piece of cultural analysis that is a little bit ahead of its time, in a way. The True Crime podcast and... All that, the critique of that, I thought it was great. And he's so funny. A very, very clever movie, too. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah, we talked about it. It was his like passion project as well, wasn't it? He put the whole thing together, I think, BJ. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. So what's your number eight? Uh, my number eight is the film. It saved the movies all the way back to, I don't know, when did... <laughs> what am I doing? Let me start that again. My number eight. <laughs> my number eight is the film that saved the movies, and funnily enough that we'd be talking about Tom Cruise, because of course it is, Top Gun Maverick. This is how you do a recall. This is how you play on nostalgia. This is how you give people exactly what they want without it making them feel sick. Um, Have we already talked about this one? I think we did previously. I think we did a show on that. Yeah, we did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. I mean, who knows? I mean, it's not like we were there, all right. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's hard to remember, like, what we talked about here and what we talked about elsewhere, you know? Yeah, it's very true. Because really, for me and you, this is just basically a phone call, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. <laughs> but it's not been on your list before now. It, it wasn't no, and I have it on my list. I've, okay, got, cool. I've got it at some point here, too. What do you say about this that hasn't already been said, really? I mean, the 300 yeah. hours of aerial... I thought somebody knocked on the door then. That's obviously Art the Clown. <laughs> <laughs> Shit! No, don't do that. <laughs> it's like those little moments when you do hear a little knock before your adult mind takes back over and you're like, oh, shit. Oh, no, don't worry. It's just a film. But you know how I got over it? I thought, well, if Art the Clown's real, then Lauren Levera can also be real and she'll be the next one through the door so I can I can feel <laughs> it. Do you know what I mean? I'll get like, <laughs> the sexy girl with the angel wings is like a two-form. Yeah. It'd be worth it, mate. Cut me up and just give me five minutes. That's all I ask. <laughs> Very true. Really voluntary. I wouldn't like force myself on it. Like that ain't what I'm saying. It. This is a completely fictional thing whereby ghosts and monsters are real. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course, of course. No, I get yeah. you. Yeah, and in this perversion of fantasy, then yeah, I would say, <laughs> give me five minutes. <laughs> well, hold hands, smoke cigarettes, and then you can get on with it, mate. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Of course, the joke would be on him because I would have romanced her sufficiently for her to defend my honour <laughs> <laughs> and my head. But yeah, back to the point, Top Gun Maverick. There are scenes in this, there's one specific scene whereby there's aerial combat, this dogfight, one of the planes almost goes vertically in the air and just comes to a complete stop. I felt myself almost coming out of my seat at the cinema. Mm-hmm. Holy shit! Yeah, that was and great. It, Without it being 3D, which you can never imagine Tom Cruise ever being a part of, the sequences were so visceral. The verisimilitude of every bank, of every turn, that's what you get from actually filming it. Yeah, in a vacuum, I can see how I would not love a film of this style because it can be kind of saccharine at times, a little bit sentimental, but somehow it pulls it off. Like you were saying earlier, its style of callback is so on point the sentimental elements play in with the original so well when you temper that against the flight scenes and the Mm. true action like the true peril of the action scenes Mm. just comes off so great i love that movie and also what i think has been missed a lot with this is nobody was asking for this film there wasn't existing sentiment for a top gun sequel it was very much put on us the film you never knew you needed totally and then you watched it wow Wow. It's a shame that Kelly McGuinness basically got so fat she wasn't allowed in this. (laughs) (laughs) And then what annoyed me is she moaned, she bemoaned the fact that Hollywood doesn't cast the people that look like me. Yeah, but guess how you got the original role? There were fat cunts that were probably better actresses back in the day and you got it because (laughs) you were sexy. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. If you want that to be the rule, then you're not even having this conversation now. <laughs> Granted, that was like 40 years ago. Time takes its toll, Tim. Amazing that we are so energetic and handsome at this yeah. point. It's like, a miracle. It's amazing we found each other. Two beautiful men on the internet. Just, I, I know. I know. You know, you know that's grinder, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You put yourself in hot water by even approaching that because if you go, but seriously, we're, we're not gays, <laughs> then you're like, what? <laughs> no, there'd be anything wrong with that. Well, right. I'm a heterosexual male, so to me, it is actually unappealing. A good old fashioned yeah. buns and willies, not on the table. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care how fucking politically correct you are, because if I've learned anything about heterosexuality, 
<laughs> if I if I'm not peer pressuring my missus into a threesome, then I ain't fucking. <laughs> <laughs> oh shit! Apparently, that's fine to say no to a threesome, but the second I say I don't want to be, <laughs> <laughs> oh, do you man. have anything to add to Top Gun Maverick? Tim? No, I'll reveal it when it comes on my list. But yeah, let's let's move forward. Okay, okay. Uh, number seven. Bodies, bodies, bodies. Yes. Oh, I love this one. We did a segment in an earlier show, and this was, I think, your number 11. Is that right? It was my number 11, yeah. So canny. Oh, um, I know. It just does Gen Z so well. And like yeah. you said last week, it invites you in as an observer. It's inviting. It doesn't put you off or make fun of you. There are characters that are avatars for us, like that, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. like the Lee Pace character. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. still, it's very inviting and like almost like educational, didactic in yeah. some ways, but in a good way impressively it doesn't make it like the jokes on us for not understanding it but it also doesn't make the subjects the jokes they're all dislikable and somehow you still have intrigue into the characters so that takes me to number seven sure does now this was a departure for the otor director who had a wrath of stylistic art house horrors on A24 already. I love The Lighthouse, Willem Dafoe and, and Pattinson. Pattinson were just supreme. So to see Robert Eggers take on something like The Northman, it just excited me. And mm-hmm. I was excited by it. It combined the fantastical of the age with the visceral brutality Mm-hmm. And intentionally totally. so as well. You weren't supposed to like anybody in this film. Sure, you had protagonists, but at the same time, there was nobody really that comes out of this film with any merit whatsoever. Like it's just a it's, series yeah. of nasty people. And when you say people, I think it it clouds the fact that it's not somebody that's causing a ruckus in the workplace. This is Norse mythology, wretchedness of that time. You can just be collecting the eggs, boiling the water, and then out of nowhere, you have this fucking gargantuan rabble of men, raping, Mm -hmm. pillaging, locking children in a straw and wood hut and setting it alight, taking the spoils of of the berserk. It's, you could almost smell it yeah, I even thought some of that came off in the characterization. Like the Anna Taylor Joy character, I can't remember what, yes, yes. what her name is. I felt both sympathetic for her, but I couldn't right, tell whether she was also evil. She's both the victim and potentially a monster as well. And I thought I loved that. You could have those feelings about a character simultaneously. It lets you know very quickly in the opening exchanges where they're on their canoe or a kayak or something, a father and son net fishing at the side of the water. And they just kill them and then laugh. They put yeah. an arrow. First of all, they shoot the son. And then as the, the shock of it's coming to the father, he turns around and he gets an arrow. Yeah. Splendidly horrific. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Totally. Completely amoral. And it had the perfect dab of magical realism. You know, it's like there's a reality to the and a viscerality to the violence, like you're saying, the day to day. And then they tie it in with something supernatural or something of the bizarre. And I love those little touches. It's not an outright fantasy movie at all. No, I mean, no. it's grounded in a you know a film reality certainly, but it had those pieces of the supernatural that I loved, and it, it really culminates in that final battle. I thought it was awesome. So you're number six. Uh, my number six is the Northman. So okay, there you go. Cool. Yeah. And my number six, Tim, is now what we've come to learn in Elseworlds in the DCU. It was, of course, Matt Reeves. The Batman, Robert Pattinson adopted the persona of both Bruce Wayne and the taciturn, stoic nature of this young Batman. It's like we've talked about with score, like it's a connoisseurist thing whereby people who like to pertain to have knowledge about films, they go, oh, and the score was fantastic. Like, because who's going to fucking disagree with you? Like, what are you going to do? Go, no, it was flat. It should have been in this pitch. Like, no one knows enough about, no one knows enough about composing. Yeah, yeah. You know, true classic, not classic. Well, most of the time it is classical, but just a piece of music that isn't a song. Like, who's going to say it's good or bad? I know some of them are iconic. And obviously you go back through 
John Williams in Superman and Raiders of the Lost Ark and all that sort of shit. Like some of them were just iconic, but really mm-hmm. that's more like a little ditty, isn't it? It's not really what we've come to know with what people talk about, like Hans Zimmer, like where it's the score from the whole thing or like mm-hmm. my favourite Max Richter. But that's the whole thing again, like people always go to Hans Zimmer and it's like, well, all right then, but tell me one that isn't the most obvious and then tell me how much you like film scores. Well, I don't know yeah. anybody else. Tell me why you like it. It can't be like, I like the sound of it. It sounds good to me. That's not... Exactly, exactly. However, in The Batman, there is something that this film would not be the same without its sound engineering. It very much makes the city and blunt instruments like the Batmobile come alive. The first scene when you see the Batmobile something animalistic about it. It's grunting, it's growling, ready to pounce. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that was through everything. Yeah, yeah. I feel like I went right around the houses with that one, Tim. But with the power editing, it's going to sound just fine. <laughs> <laughs> Good grief. I mean, I didn't feel that passionately about it. And to everybody else, it's going to seem like I wasn't. But trust me, that went on long thing. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, everybody in this, everyone in the Batman was great. Um, the only criticism I had of it was it was one act too long. The capture of the, Rid- the capture of the Riddler was too easy, even though you felt it had to be Machiavellian, which it ended up being. The end of it seemed to set up No Man's Land. Uh, I mean, I think there's like four omnibuses for No Man's Land. It was that big a Batman event. So Gotham City's basically plunged underwater. Batman's trying to take back the city. And this is how you know it was completely unnecessary because my dad, he loves his films, but he just watches them at face value. If they excite him, they excite him. That's not to say there's anything wrong with just liking things on face value because he takes the same enjoyment out of it. In actual fact, he takes more enjoyment out of more films than I do. Fair play to him. He said, I knew it wouldn't end there because it's a superhero film. We needed the fight at the end. Oh, right. Yeah, it was that obvious, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. That to me is what kind of left it off my list entirely. A, it is too long. It's it is also long. narratively an act too long. Yeah. And I found the conclusion anticlimactic for those, for those it reasons. Was, yeah, anticlimactic. Um, sure. But. I can't fault the performances at all. I thought Paul Dano was good. Robert Pattinson's like one of our great actors. It looked great. Yeah. And it sounded great. So, and yeah. I think what I liked about it the most was it was a Batman film. They were very sparing of Bruce Wayne. And I liked that. And it was a d- detective film. Yeah. 100%. So that was great. That was good, too. Good stuff. Number five, please, Tim. I went with X. Number five. Nice. I separated them because I thought they were, they're so tonally different. You've seen X? I've seen X, yeah. I enjoyed it. Yeah. It looked like a 70s film. I thought it was bold and having them shooting like porn films in this barn. Yeah, yeah. And I felt like some degree of sympathy for Pearl. She's basically been neglected, you know, and mm. she just needs like some love. I felt like somewhat sympathetic towards her, even though she's a, also a monster. There's a lot of tension to it. Even mm. scenes where you know nothing's going to happen, like that scene, that mm. shot from the drone up top where Mia Goth gets into the water mm. and there's the alligator chasing mm. after her. She just barely gets out. I was on the edge of my seat, even though I know they're not going to kill her off. But it was very exciting to watch. There's not many new stories to tell, but mm-hmm. it's how you tell them. This was very classic. There's nowhere to turn. Um, mm-hmm. The only way to escape the peril is to confront it head on, go through yeah. It's just done in a really smart way. And completely entertaining. The perfect amount of pastiche. And let's not forget Jen Ortega was in it. That whole scene where her boyfriend's filming it and she's just been brought along for the ride. And she's like, oh, I want to do a scene. And he was like, no, that isn't what I volunteered myself for. Like at the end of, have you seen Zola? Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's like the final scene of that where the kid, because his immediate environment is so contrary to common sense, that in that environment, he's the contrarian because everybody else is of low moral prestige. As the viewer, it makes you so tense and on edge. And it's very much the same. 
because she's still prostituting herself, isn't she? And she's telling him that he's not going to do it anymore. And he's like, I'm going to fucking kill myself. I'm going to jump off the balcony. Then they're all going, yeah, go on then. Do it, you fucking faggot. Do it. And then He he fucking does it. And they don't call an ambulance. They pick him up and put him in a car. And it's just horrendous to watch. And you felt that same anguish for the poor cameraman. I know. It's just horrific. Yeah. Putting yourself in the position of the cameraman. Oh my God, this is just like an intolerable fucking moment. And then the thing is, she turns it all around on him. She's like, I thought you said this was real art. It's yeah, not just yeah, a porn yeah. film. It's like real filming. Yeah, yeah. He's like, duh, duh. I have no response to that. Mm. There's that practical where the, the main guy, the camera kid, storms out. And then the main guy goes after him, basically is like, dude, this is happening one way or another. You, you, you may as well get on board so you can film it so that you can be basically the director. One way or another, this is happening. And he finally comes to the conclusion that, you know, practically speaking, he's fucked. Because you can't think of anything worse, though, can you? No, I mean, it's it's like truly like, yeah, one of the, yeah. It's why it works as a film, because it's not purely the tension stack of the killer in the woods. Completely, completely. You, the audience, by that scene are as caught off guard as he is by it. Like, what the fuck did you just say? It's like, holy shit. She's a quiet little mouse for most of it, isn't she? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I thought it was awesome. A quiet little squeaker. (laughs) (laughs) Eating cheese. (laughs) (laughs) Number five. All right. Number five. Let's give a brief introduction about the general list. I'm not what I would consider a fan of horror films. Heavily troped, built on depreciating returns. However, on both our lists... I know we said this at the beginning of the last episode. (laughs) Well, at least I think I probably stumbled through it. Mm -hmm. That the richness and the variance of the quality of horror films that have been out in the last 12 months in this Mm -hmm. Oscars cycle, no less, (laughs) Mm -hmm. is quite astonishing. If you'd have said to me, you're going to make a best of list of any year, a quarter of it is horror films. I would have been astonished. I would have been in disbelief. Nay, I would have called you a liar. Yeah. (laughs) But yet, here we are. So, my number five, it is Barbarian. Barbarian. The film was the monster in the dark, what's behind the next door kind of shit. Very traditional. A lot of the themes and premises that we used in the early... Zombie films, you keep going through the doors until one's locked and then you have to turn and face the danger that is in front of you. And that's kind of the premise of this. However, it's a very honest appraisal of social norms and social misgivings in the same way that not every liberal is a blue-haired whale in the same that not every conservative is an Indian headpiece wearing fucking racist. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. with this film at the beginning, it sets up a man and a woman who have never met before. They're unfamiliar and it's weighing up who can be trusted. And of course, Mm -hmm. we know that there's an element of, you know, it's a horrific film. So we're expecting there to be some danger somewhere. It sets up adversary between two people that are really actually quite nice. Yeah, And yeah. all they're trying to do is make the best of the situation. And the horrific themes and expectations are kind of vis-a-vis for the horrific expectations of what could happen when you encounter a stranger. Mm-hmm. Totally. You're never certain of the man's intentions. Is it Alex Skarsgård in this case? It's the uh, Pennywise, whatever. Yeah, Alexander Skarsgård. Yeah, Alexander yeah. Skarsgård. The thing is, even as a man, I'm distrusting the man. Totally. And even when he's screaming help from the depths of the subterranean left, yes. you think yeah. he's just luring her in. Totally. And it's not until he literally has his head bashed in that you're like, oh, he was just a nice <laughs> dude. <laughs> yeah. He literally yeah. didn't want her going out in the dark. He literally yeah. just fancied having, look, he was probably trying to get his willy wet, but he did just want to have a glass of wine with the attractive young lady. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> Totally, completely. Part of the genius of that, the promotional campaign, part of it is the casting. It's just so many layers to making that tension believable for you to really feel it. The first 25 minutes of that movie are basically perfect. Yeah. 
absolutely perfect. Yeah. I love that movie. It's on my list too. Boy, I know we did do a segment on this. There's so much you could say about this movie. It's, it's so innovative. I can't speak for women, and nor will I try to. However, I'm about to try to. <laughs> but you know, when I watch Promising Young Woman, I always hark back to this. It's in the way that it leads you to inspect your own activity. And it wasn't really a conversation that was being had at the time. And it makes you inspect yourself and question yourself. Now, what answers you come up with are entirely down to how honest you are with yourself and actually your past actions. But it made me ask myself those questions. Mm -hmm. This maybe is the antithesis of this as a woman watching it, that not every man's out to get you. You know, it's interesting when you bring up promising young woman you know we have a character we haven't talked about in this was the justin long character the guy who owns the house he is a me too monster the question is you always have it in the back of your head when he returns to the house could he be redeemed could he be heroic in this case yeah, yeah. and in fact he just turns out to be the complete asshole that he yeah. he always oh. was it's so good but again this film made me question my own i won't say prejudices because that's a fucking wishy-washy word Okay, let's say prejudices. Things like Me Too, they have to go too far in the other way before they recoil and find the medium where we need to be. With this, I was sympathetic to Justin Lang's character. Is it Lang or Long? Long. Justin Long's character. I bet it's one of those, you know, two people were out, they probably had a couple of drinks, maybe the circumstances have changed in hindsight. And I was kind of like, I hope he's innocent. It turns out when he admits to it, to his mm -hmm. friend when they're speaking drunkly, he goes, yeah, but did you? He goes, well, you know me, Holmes, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Shit. Actually, I've fallen into the trap of being sympathetic to somebody that didn't deserve my sympathy from my personal bias. All right, prove it to me, and that sort of shit. And then I was like, mm -hmm. oh, no. Oh, no. They've pointed out something about yeah, me the, the, in the film, yeah. but I'm not in the film, but it's about me. Yeah. Again, <laughs> yeah, the movie like is brilliant in in building in realizing the narrative tension. It depends mm. upon the expectations, uh, not just of narrative that you bring in the film, but of social norms in society. It's so yeah. good. It, it's a horror film, so there is going to be tension: the physical tension of the action, of the inaction, of the unable to to act. But then yeah. again, on top of that, we're trying to deal with where's that coming from? Totally. Because you don't know movie. if it's a monster film until yeah. the very second you see the monster. The only criticism I'll have in this in hindsight is the old dude. You think that he's trouble in the opening scenes, like pushing the trolley around and he's, don't go in there. It's nothing but bad. Yeah. He could have just called the police, couldn't he, from the first instance. <laughs> get to a phone. It only comes out at night. You need to get out of there or whatever. At the same time, it's a thoroughly well-maintained house. Have not previous people been there and been there at night? And what happens every night? Does it just come out and just have a bit of a novel? If you're the old guy and you know that crazy things happen here, surely someone would have reported a missing Airbnb tenant in the yeah, past. The door had to be opened from one side, didn't it? Mm -hmm. Like the string to open it. Were people just not that curious? And in that case, how did the monster exist? The child of much incest. How did it survive down there? There's a lot of practical inspection that you probably don't need to make. But it is one of those afterwards when you think, huh. Mm. huh. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. let's not make any mistakes, Tim. It's the fifth best film of the year, according to me. I also love it. Is it on your list? Oh, yeah. Is it higher? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, he's got a fucking twinkle in his eyes, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. All right. So my number four, a movie we've already talked about. My number four, Top Gun Maverick. Now, my top four, I think, are going to be unique. Oh, no, no, no. Three of my top four are going to be unique. And three of them are quite niche choices. I think Tim probably could tell you three of them now. So <laughs> number four is a single take film. It's about a chef that set up his own restaurant, Stephen Graham, and he is encountering the problems of a Friday night peak service time. And he's dealing with problems with the staff. He's dealing with personal problems. He's dealing with bad actors. And the film is called Boiling Point. Mm -hmm. Now, despite the implausibility of everything like this happening in one shift from working in the hospitality industry 
as a young man, as a, as a teenager, having waited on, having worked in the kitchens and that sort of shit. This is actually very realistic portrayal of how chaotic, how pressured, how at boiling point every service is. Mm-hmm. Everybody's fighting each The waiters and the waitresses are fighting the chefs. The managers are fighting everybody. The wine service, they have it fucking easy. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. They have one job. Molliers are just like... Yeah, People are sure. falling out. They're arguing. They're fighting for the courses. Why isn't mine ready yet? I'm getting shit off the customers. Because basically, we're doing silver service waiting. We've got dicky bows on, but we're fucking 16-year-olds and it's our first job. The people in the restaurant are basically looking for silver service with bow ties. That ain't us because we're getting paid minimum <laughs> fucking wage. <laughs> yeah. Not only that, but it's a man that you see him on the phone at the very beginning and he's mm-hmm. having trouble with his ex-wife and he's promising that he'll be there and he didn't mean to let her down. And it's not clear whether it's you know maybe his daughter or it's maybe his ex-wife that he promised to help or something like that. But you can see that he's a deeply troubled man, progresses. And why this works... What was the other film? 1970. which is preposterous that that's a short film these days. And it's heartfelt and it's emotionally detailed and at times it's heartbreaking. And it's one of those where you're constantly just touching the, the side of your eye. And, mm-hmm. and as you see Stephen Graham's character spiral out of control, you always suspect it's not water in his water bottle. At one point mm-hmm. he sends a kitchen porter to empty the bins. And it's clever the way it sets the expectations as well, because he's outside and you think he's just binning off his work, smoking a fag and he's on his phone. And then a car pulls up and he goes to the window and gets something out of the car. And then obviously he takes that back to, to Stephen Graham. And at the end, there's this... Yeah, have you seen it, Tim? Nope. I won't tell you the end scene, but it's painful when the destruction the destructive nature of addiction and that you can be a high performing addict you can run a restaurant and you can be well paid and people can depend on you but at the same time you can have this crippling anxiety about the day-to-day survival either with or without fulfilling the addiction it's hard to do without it seeming either cliched this shows again how destructive it is first of all to Well, it doesn't show all the way through the film, but by the end, it shows you how destructive it is to him, how much it's hurting him, and how much he's just keeping up appearances. Everybody knows, but nobody wants to say it, because for what use would it be? Yeah. Um, But the supporting cast as well, there's one moment, I won't say it, because I know with all the rest of the films, we've been gone into it in quite detail, but I know this isn't one that many people would have seen. But there's one specific scene with a young boy who's like the apprentice to maybe the, I think it's like the sous chef or maybe something like that. And there's a heartbreaking scene. The lady who's mentoring him, falling apart. She's falling apart and the, and the young man just stands there. He doesn't know what to do, paralyzed with emotion. But she's going, look, we can't do this now. But when the shift's finished, I'm going to talk to you and I'm going to give you a big hug and we're going to help you and we're going to get you through. Absolutely hard. It's like an mm. ugly crying moment. And she just hugs him and she goes, now, now get on. Come on, people are depending on this. Wow. But yeah, yeah. it's like a beautifully tragic. Oh my God, I've just noticed how long Tim's eyelashes are. They look perfectly maintained. Not that oh, I, put well, such, I put such. I put a lot of time into it. Yeah, it's such heinous claims onto such a wonderful gentleman. But you know, <laughs> if that's what you wanted to do to make him look that good, then who am I to stop him? <laughs> number Great. three, Tim. Uh, number three, we've talked about it. Cyrano. Oh, I, I love it. I, I love it. it. I love it. Uh, what you can't well, see, listeners, is how happy. Our faces were when he said the word. We both went immediately <laughs> ear to ear and looked lovingly into each other's finely <laughs> mascara <and> eyes. 
Well, the thing is, like, no one talks about this movie. Nobody talks about it. It just came and went. Yeah. You know? I wouldn't even suggest it didn't come. It just went. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We, we talked about it last week, but I lo- I truly love it. Do you know what the annoying thing is, though? You get, like, the Fae Womans that also underperform drastically. And nobody's saying it's a good film. And that's, again, it goes back to what we said in the previous episode, that... It, oh no, it's not in the previous episode. It'd be in the succeeding episode <laughs> when we go through all the Oscar categories that we've already taken. Yeah. After you've looked at one or two categories, it all just feels very, very familiar. Elvis didn't need to be in anything, in everything. Fablemans didn't need to be in everything. All Quiet on the Western Front, probably more of the technical side of it than maybe. Maybe I'm adapted screenplay I, I could have gone for, but I don't know. I mean, I've got it nine. How many are they allowed? Ten. Ten films, aren't they? in the best picture. Mm. So things like Cyrano or Serrano, it should have been in best song. Hell yeah. No question there. Yeah. 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 Dinklage. Yeah. What can you say? I feel like I've stolen your thunder consistently here. I feel like a lot of the coincidental films in both of our lists, I think I've got in, I've pipped you to the post by one almost every time. <laughs> no, no, it's okay. I mean, I've gotten my, my piece out on these. So, okay. Yeah. Number three. <laughs> Don't know what else there is to say about this. It's an indie film that has just rocketed into the zeitgeist. I don't need to probably say too much more about it. Banshees of Inishirin. This is my number two. I'm almost kind of out of words for Banshees of Inishirin. We spoke about it a lot, even if it wasn't on the air. And I kind of, I mean, what else is there to say at this point? I mean, just fantastic performances through and through. I'm technically behind the camera all accented as opposed to prominent and it was those accents almost fantastical premise yeah that, that made it work like the sincerity that ran through the film even though oh sincerity that's a great word for this one of the things that was so compelling about this was colin farrell's character the movie starts off so depressing and tragic in, in a way you know and he maintains hope throughout nearly the entire movie, even mm. after the fingers start getting cut off, he still maintains hope that the relationship can be salvaged. And you as the audience slowly, patiently come to realize that's not going to happen. And the sympathy that you feel for him when you, the audience, know it's not going to work, but he yeah. still holds hope is so great. When he finally recognizes it and suffers his own tragedy, it gets extremely dark. The patience of the movie pays that off tenfold and Kerry Condon's a big part of that oh she's so good I couldn't work it out for a good part of this film it's Iron Man suit it's Friday Mm. (laughs) I don't think that's a good idea Tony (laughs) 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 you won't survive you need to come back down immediately yeah thank you Friday but uh I need to be a bit more positive about this one Because when I looked at my IMDb to find out like who she was, I was flicking through it. She's like the most watched actress or actor I probably have on it because she's made like seven MCU appearances. That's so funny. Isn't it funny? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, off putting at the time, she's the commonsensical POV in the film. We haven't talked about Barry uh, Keegan. I was literally about to say that. Yeah. He is that one scene when he's asking if she could love him. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Just beautifully sad. Yes, totally. Totally heartbreaking for both when of them. Film achieves what it achieves. Is it always pairs conflicting emotional sets together? Colin Farrell's character is, of course, the one that's been hard done by, but then his optimism is the catalyst for all the tragedy. Actually, yes. pairing tragedy with optimism. In the same way of that scene, you have an obviously dim-witted moment because his character isn't particularly likable. It wouldn't really want him to end up with your sister because of how yeah. he behaved previously in the film, but it manages to pair that with actually a quite warm and tender moment. Yeah, that's great. That's great analysis. Thank you, I, Yeah, no, totally. I'm actually writing that down. I just took a note on that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I wouldn't have got there if you hadn't led me there, mate. (laughs) Oh, well, thank you so much. Yeah. I love this movie. I really do. It could have been number one. You got to just make some decisions. When you make lists like this, they're so important to you in that moment. I've got to get it right. You know, I can't let one of the 10 people that'll hear this. (laughs) We can't let Brussels down. (laughs) So is it my number two? It's not a film without controversy for Andrea Riseborough's inclusion in the best actress list. One that was in Tet, 
The woman's in. The woman came. Viola Davis. Yeah, Viola Davis. Here's the thing that annoys me about the narrative about, uh, okay, by the way, the film is to Leslie. And the thing that I find reprehensible about the whole controversy is that, first of all, we have Michelle Williams, who did Next to Fuck All in The Fablemans, and she should have been supporting actress, but they didn't think she stood a chance in that, so they promoted her to Best Actress. Mm-hmm. It's just one of the curiosities about nomination process that I'll never understand. The second one is we have Anna de Armes, who... Apparently, she performs well in Blonde, but to be honest, if she wasn't on the list, it wouldn't be a problem. The thing that annoys me is the targeted, oh, Oscars So White Brigade that are targeting Andrea Riseborough. I will guarantee you 99% of those cunts haven't seen the film. Fucking guarantee you that. But also, because it's the, the independent film, the multi-million dollar campaign that it will be, that would be more than the budget of Two Leslie, that is excluded by proxy from not having the amount of money... Thinks outside the box. It's a brilliant film. And make no mistakes, it's a brilliant performance. So yep. for Andrew Riseborough to be caught up in interviews, it has deeply affected her that her nomination is seen as a race problem. Why are we assuming that she's the sixth nominee or the fifth nominee? Why right. are we assuming that those two black actresses were the fifth and sixth? They did a guerrilla campaign through... Okay, so it's Michael Morris is the director and it's his film. His wife is a bit of a bigwig on the studio stage. She's friendly with some big Hollywood actresses, like Kate Winslet's one of them. So there was a guerrilla campaign on Twitter to say, this is a great film, you should all watch it. And it was trying to sway people, the frequency of by which this would be mentioned on social media. Why wouldn't anybody do that? The Oscars are so old money, SAG is so old money, that because they haven't gone the traditional route of bombarding it with money, with, you know, the fancy parties and the long campaign for your consideration, it's unfair because that's not how it's done. That's the age we're living in. Yeah. So it's incredibly unfair to the film. It's incredibly unfair to Michael Morris. It's incredibly unfair to Andrew Riseborough because we should be talking about an actress, who's a working actress, she is now putting the role of her career and it's been tarnished. She has every right and should have been nominated in this. I've never seen addiction. I've never seen the destructive nature of alcoholism being paid so accurately. And mm-hmm. it's not scared to go to some truly horrible and comfortable scenes to watch. It shows its destructiveness, first of all, to Andrew Riseborough. And it, then it shows the destructive nature of the people around it. It also shows that sometimes you need an external agent to bring them back around. And and you said earlier, the way that Mark Maron plays Mm -hmm. his role, he's more sympathetic. He almost allows her to take it at her own pace, but I'll be here for you when you need me. Mm -hmm. And there's this timid, fragile, developing romance between the two, but you don't know if Mark Maron, if that's really what it is, or is he just just somebody that wants to help somebody out? And then there was no point where you questioned that this isn't, a southern lady and it's an english actor the consistency of the tone of the ways that she speaks what i love is when actresses aren't afraid to get ugly because it's not wearing makeup and having a nice dress on but your mascara is leaking down your face she looks physically wretched haggard broken haggard she looks 10 years older than her days she ends up being estranged from her son and again, I won't go into too many plot details in this because it's not like the blockbusters where if you haven't seen them by now, you know, it's not your fault. Nobody saw this film. It's just has this beautiful darkness through it. And in actual fact, it's a strange one because you want her to get her shit together. But at the same time, you don't care because she's so wanton throughout the film. She pushes everybody away almost with the intent because to let people in would take more work than it is to sustain her addiction. That's mm-hmm. that's the easy path. And some of the positions that she sets herself in, I won't call them heartbreaking, but they're so tragically dangerous. She's lost all respect for herself. She's lost all respect for a normal life. But then when Mark Maron comes into her life and she treats him like shit, but he lets her because he thinks if he can just show her enough love and understanding that he can pull her out of it. And it's yeah. And you don't know which way the story's going to go. Let's just say, without saying if it's positive or negative, the final scene in this film, and I, I don't mind saying, I ugly, I wow, wow, cry. 
I was a fucking wreck, mate. Like literally. Um, <laughs> it was powerful. It wasn't just like wiping my eyes. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> 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 it was fucking it wrong. Mate, I was I deserve an Oscar. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't afraid to get ugly. <laughs> but yeah, I fucking love I'm just saying I love this. I do, I love it. I love it. It's not a comfortable watch. It's at best awkward. I could watch this again and again. It's just... Oh, definitely. I only watched it uh, two nights ago. You know, had I seen it earlier, it would be on my list. But I thought it was just so true to anyone who's either experienced this firsthand themselves or has a loved one who's going through some form of addiction. It's just so true to life. For instance, like when she goes to visit her son and stay in the son's apartment, and then he goes off to work, like immediately the desperation with which she's like yeah, checking yeah. coins in the seat cushions of the couch, yeah. going through pants to see if there's any money left over so she can buy herself a bottle of liquor. The desperation is so true. Yeah. What you're saying earlier um, about an external force. I mean, one thing about this type of situation is that ironically, it's the people who you are closest to who are in some ways the least capable of helping you through because of the way that the addict has damaged has so profoundly damaged those people yeah and there's always like you know yeah it's so the marin character it's just so true i I, in my view true to life like someone who doesn't have that backstory with her who's able to be be patient it's spine tinglingly versimilitudinous yeah totally totally yeah yeah well i mean god that could be an episode in itself connecting all right Drum roll. My number one for this Oscar year is Red Notice. Red Notice. The Rock and Ryan Reynolds. They weren't in Barbarian, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> I'm obviously fucking with you. Barbarian, baby. Yes. Number yes. one. Oh, uh, we've already handled that one. So, but yeah, I, I love that. You get, to, you get, to, you can say a little, you can just, one thing we didn't say is like oftentimes with horror movies you can watch them once because they're dependent on jump scares and once you Mm. see the jump scare you know it right but this Mm. is not dependent on that this is something you can watch several times Mm. and get more out of it so i love i love this movie obviously have you got an idea what my last film is my number one of of the oscar cycle for 2022 stroke 23 okay this film is it's another from a24 it's oscar nominated paul mescal and it's one of the most succinctly understated films I've ever seen. Frankie Corio should be feel yourself very unlucky. I actually feel that the Oscars should have a category for young actor. I think if we're splitting it by the sexes, we should have a young performance as well. It's as separate and diverse as male and female. I think there should be a young category, hmm. which absolutely should not exclude them from being in the best of category as well. The film is called After Sun. It's one of the most patiently depictions of a man's struggle with mental health. A young father is taking his tween daughter on holiday and he's kind of estranged from her and he doesn't see his offer as as he probably should do. And it doesn't play to the, well, you're never there. All very quiet. When there is butting of heads, it feels very, very realistic. It's about the silly things, you know, how a father may want to do one thing, but the kid wants to do another. He actually mm-hmm. gives Frankie Corio's character a lot of space and trusts her. She's a sensible young lady. Well, not young lady, a sensible girl. What it does so clever is it puts her in situations that are perilous. There's a tension that runs through the film because of how quietly spoken it is. You're always waiting for the tragedy. You're waiting for that right turn. Because of that, I'm so glad that it never takes the opportunity to have that one singular event that turns this film into something else because it redirects Mm. slowly the focus onto poor Mescal's crumbling mental state. And a lot like 2 Leslie, this is the perfect depiction of how the public persona of somebody that is really struggling internally, that you can keep that facade up, that you can make everybody think everything's all right. And then the quiet moments on his own, there's these nostalgic uh, rave sequences where he's in this euphoric state, letting go, and you don't know if it's longing for the past. Is this just showing the extremity of what he's going through mentally? Or yeah. very in the eye of the viewer. The way it ends the film, so powerfully quiet, but you just know, so powerful. Paul Mescal, for him to get that Oscar nomination, when I saw his name, that was the one that I punched the air. And again, 
right age for the X-Men. We might. <laughs> <laughs> Same right. with Frankie Corio as well. <laughs> Frankie, yeah, too. I think Frankie we found Cor- our Cyclops. Yeah, that's what I, yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, Cyclops. Yeah. I was thinking Cyclops and Frankie Corio would make a great honey badger. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah oh, I got to see this. I loved it. I, I loved, it, loved it. it, loved it. So that's that. It really is a good year. It really was a good year. Yeah, I just want to recap my list from 20 to 1. Weird Al, Chippendale, Emily the Criminal, Black Phone, Glass Onion, Vengeance, Fresh, Men, Serrano, Bodies, 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 Terrifier 2, All Quiet in the Western Front, Top Gun Maverick, The Northman, Batman, Barbarian, Boiling Point, Banshees of Inishir, and Two Leslie, Afterson. What that shows me is the array of different types of film, the array of different studios, the array of different types of performances. And also, there's films on Tim's list that I haven't seen. There's films on my list that Tim hasn't seen. And some of them are quite high up the list. If you're willing to go out there and find these films, it's in as healthy a state as I've ever known. Completely agree. Megan, The Menu, Men, Multiverse of Madness, the Doctor Strange movie, The Whale, Nope, Black Phone, Violent Night, Smile, Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris, Pearl, Vengeance, Bodies, 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 The Northman, X, Top Gun Maverick, Cyrano, Banshees of Inishirin, Barbarian. One thing we talked about is just how chock full both our lists are with horror movies. That's mm. where a lot of the auteur innovations are happening. Yeah. So let's wrap it up there, Tim. Yes. Goodbye, loyal listeners and first time listeners. I hope you enjoyed the list. We had fun putting them together. Indeed, we did. So yeah. goodbye from Tim. Goodbye from me. Enthusiastic as ever, co host Matt. Again, if you've made it through to this far, please subscribe, please like, please share. Or even if you didn't like it, just do it anyway. I mean, what's your fucking problem, mate? Hey, what's your problem? Let's just get those boxes ticked. Visit us on YouTube, visit us on Instagram, visit us on Twitter. And that only leaves me one thing to say we have been, and this is the end. Bravo.